How many know what happened on Easter Sunday morning? Go ahead, raise your hand. Don't be afraid. You, wait, wait. Now, intellectuals never raise their hands. <laughs> so apparently the intellectuals are the ones that didn't know what happened. So if you have one sitting next to you, tell them what happened, and we'll try it again. If you know what happened on Easter Sunday morning, please raise your hand. Well, that's most of us. The rest of you are in for a treat. Every Easter, as on every Christmas, I ask God for the gift of wonder. Wonder is a mixture of surprise, delight, intrigue, curiosity, laughter, reverence, all at the same time. I had a friend who was a pastor in Michigan for a number of years. He started an evangelistic Bible study where he had people in his neighborhood. They had no idea what Christianity was about. They'd never seen the Bible, never heard the story before. So he'd gather with people in his living room on Monday nights, put out the ashtrays. Sometimes he'd put out the beer, and then he would put out copies of the Bible, the same copy. Rather than refer to chapter and verse, they referred to page numbers. They would read the Bible out loud in the presence of one another, and then they would think amongst themselves, what do these things mean? When they came to the end of Mark, chapter 15, they chose Mark, he said, because it was the shortest gospel and quite possibly the first. They got to the end of Mark, chapter 15, and all it says there is, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where they laid him. The end. One of the men was startled room was silent and finally one of them said you know I've come to like this guy he said some amazing things but he said some bold things if he's everything he says he is let's see if he comes back from the dead he didn't know my friend the minister smiled and said to him, hold that thought and then let's read the next chapter next week. Now, I've told that story before, but when I told it before, I was amused. I liked the man's curiosity. I loved his naivete, his innocence. When I tell the story today, I'm envious. He didn't know. Imagine how much fun you could have with the resurrection if you didn't know what happened. Why, you'd read it like a fairy tale. You'd be running into things all the time. And if you were inclined to believe those things, it would change your life. But Easter has become for Christians... The horror of the same old thing. So every year I ask God for the gift of wonder. And I've come to believe that wonder is the best thing God can give to the intellect. Whatever the subject. Because it's when you think you know something, you can no longer be surprised. Would you mind if I pray for you and me right now? Sermon's not over, but 
Father, open our eyes. Help us to see for the first time that which we are very familiar with. We believe. Yes, we believe. Now help our unbelief. Amen. You there? There's two ways of coming at this. One may look at Easter as a movie, or one may look at it as a mini-series. If you look at it as a movie, you reach into all four Gospels, and you take details peculiar to each, and you weave them together into one cohesive story, and then you play that movie in front of your mind, and you watch it, seasoned as it is by details from the four Gospels. Where the four Gospels differ from one another, and there are differences, and they are kind of significant, you tend to mute those and turn them down because you're after one cohesive story. The other way to read this is to read it as a mini-series. There are four parts. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and... Mm, four of you are still with me. You thought it was a trick question, didn't you? Here, you let each person tell the story that they want to tell, and here you emphasize the differences because you want the different vantage point. That makes sense? So that's the method we're going to do. I want you to think of Easter not as one story, but as four. And I want you to think of it, if you can, not as a movie, but as a photograph taken on the night before Easter. All four Gospels tell us what happened on Easter Sunday, yes, but they also tell us what happened on the night before. And if you read it carefully, all four Gospels give a different picture of what was happening on the night before. At least the emphasis is different. And so if you can back up to a Friday night and take a photograph or a sketch of what was happening on Friday night and then contrast that with what's happening on Sunday morning in each gospel, you have gospel. <laughs> you have Matthew's answer to Friday night. And then you have Mark's answer to Friday night and so forth. Are you still with me? I think I've lost two of the four. <laughs> In Matthew, the photograph is of two women sitting Opposite the tomb. And Easter means hope. In Mark, the picture, the photograph is of three women conferring amongst themselves how are we going to move that stone? That conversation they had on Sunday morning, I think, happened on Friday night. And Easter is power. In Luke, the picture is of a crowd. Only one who mentions a crowd. Each going in a different direction. Some feeling guilty. Others feeling grief. 
and others still in utter shock. And in Luke, Easter's presence. In John, the photograph on Friday night is of a garden with a virgin tomb in the center of it. No other writer mentions it. And so in John, Easter is life. It's new life. Let's stop with Matthew and zoom in. Can I do that with what little time I have left? Matthew says on the night before Easter, when it was evening, a rich man came and asked for the body. Pilate released the body to the rich man. He wrapped the body in a linen and set it in a new tomb, one that had not been used before. And the women watched him do this. And then they went to a place that was opposite the tomb. And it says in Matthew, it was Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. They sat opposite the tomb. <sighs> I can't get that image out of my mind. Because I've buried it more than 300 people. Maybe a hundred or more here. And I know I've buried someone, I, multiple people I love who died before they should have. Everyone dies, but not like this. And we all know the routine, don't we? You follow the casket down the aisle, you go to the hearse, you drive to the cemetery, they put the casket in the grave, everyone then goes back to their cars, and you come back to college church for a ham dinner. And when the dinner is over, everyone disperses, but you never leave, do you? A part of you never leaves the cemetery. Even when you go back to work and back to your circle of friends, there's a part of you is still in that cemetery sitting opposite the tomb. That means two things, by the way, in the original language. It means that they were sitting across from the tomb like one sits across from another at a table. But the other meaning of that word is in opposition to. They sat in opposition over against the tomb. And that's why I can't get the image out of my mind. As I, as I, as I look at it, I see in their eyes a longing for something that they want to be true. They are caught between their hope and what actually happened. Just like you are and just like I am, so much of our lives, we want it to be true, but we can't quite get there because of what's just happened. Part of them, I think, is in shock. A process that was supposed to take weeks took hours. Matthew 27, 1 says it was just that morning that the chief priest decided he should be killed. And nine or ten hours later, he was actually dead. The process never happens that fast. But the priests got involved, and then the mob got involved. 
And before anyone could change their mind, this person that they believed in and pinned all of their hopes on was dead. And so I think they're sitting in opposition to the system and to the injustice and the speed of it all. And they want it to be different. But the reality is, here we are. I can't get it out of my mind. And then come the guards. Only Matthew mentions the guards. No other writer mentions the guards. Apparently the priests went in and talked to Pilate. And they said, if we're not careful, this guy who told us he would rise from the dead in three days. If you're not careful, the disciples are going to steal the body and say that he rose from the dead. And that's going to be the beginning well, how do the Americans say it, Pilate, of the big lie? So Pilate says, find the guards, put them at the side of the grave. And now in my mind, I have two women sitting opposite the tomb, staring at the tomb. Well, the guards are staring at them. And the air between them is thick and cold. One of them is going to win. You with me? Here comes the good news. Easter happened, church. There was an earthquake. Only Matthew mentions the earthquake. And it happened, he said, on Friday afternoon when Jesus died, the earth shook and the bodies, not spirits, the bodies of people that were dead before came to life. And they started walking around in Jerusalem after the resurrection. Nobody ever talks about this. And the scientists explained it away. But it happened. When he died, death died. And the bodies came out of the ground and they started walking around. But the women did not know that this had happened. They were still sitting in utter shock watching the burial. Meanwhile, God was standing earth on its head in Jerusalem, there outside the city, looking at the loss. And then Sunday morning, while the women started to get to the tomb, there was an earthquake and they looked and the stone was gone and there was an angel sitting on top of the stone and the tomb was empty. And this is when it starts to occur to them, wait a second, man, all bets are off. Maybe nothing is as it seems. Maybe it's a whole new world out there. But I don't think they got there yet. They're in shock. And before they can turn and run for their lives, an angel says to them, don't be afraid. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> he said, uh, uh, if, I, if I go there today and that hole is open, I'm running, man. 
Don't be afraid, he says. I know you're looking for Jesus in Nazareth. He's not here. He's not here. He is risen just as he said. Come, see the place. Then go and tell the disciples that he is going ahead of them into Galilee. Tell the disciples that he is risen and he is always going ahead of them. Tell them that you are never leaving Easter. Tell them that you are always walking into Easter and all things are new. So the, so the women, they turn and now they run. And on their way out, he shows up and he says, wait for it, the most profound words in the New Testament. Greetings. <laughs> That's it? I mean, that is as simple. You understand, that's the New Testament version of... <clears throat> How's it going? <laughs> Wait a second, man. Wait a second. You are no longer in there. You're now out here. And on my way out the door, you just, you say, greetings? But it's like all of this... Is ordinary for him. It's like he was saying to the women, I told you I would never leave you. I told you I was coming back. You said you believed me. And now you're surprised. Well, it's sort of like that. Well, the women... They run off to the disciples. And at the same time, the guards run off, or the priests run off to Pilate. The guards and the priests confer over here while the women are conferring with the disciples over here. And if you read the story like this, all of the narrative is divided into two paths and the entire world is divided with it. There are those in the world that believe the report of the guards. So the priests tell the guards, well, here's what you're going to say. You're going to say that the disciples stole the body and we'll cover for you. When, as I'm reading this, I'm thinking, wait a minute, first you were afraid that the disciples were going to tell the big lie, now you're telling the big lie in the other direction. Now, it's no longer the body that's in that tomb, it's the truth, and you're guarding it like you guarded that body. You have to keep the world believing your narrative. Meanwhile, the women meet with the disciples and tell them 
everything that they've seen and heard in their encounter with Jesus. I think this is my imagination here, all right? Is that all right? My sugar's low, let's say. I think the women, I think they went back to the place where they sat before. I think, I don't, can't prove this, but I like to think in my mind, my imagination, that they ran off to tell the brothers. And then they went back to the place. And they sat opposite that tomb. Rome was still in charge. Rome was still telling its narrative. And it went like this. We know that nobody can come back from the dead. And therefore that man is not alive. But the women are thinking. We know this man is alive. So maybe people can come back from the dead. Most of the world will believe Rome. But because of Easter, it's possible now to believe something else that you couldn't believe before. So when the women sit opposite the tomb, now they are no longer looking at it. They're looking through it. Because that tomb is not a hole in the earth. It's a tear in the veil between heaven and earth. They look through it and they start to wonder, holy cow, that's in the Greek. Maybe heaven and earth. <laughs> Maybe they're not in two different places. Maybe they're not in two different worlds. Maybe they're both in the same good world. And maybe the veil between them is thin. Maybe what's in heaven can walk into this world undetected whenever he wants because of that tomb. Maybe the earth is open to the heavens. Angels and the Christ can descend and ascend whenever they want, mostly unnoticed. Maybe we are not alone. Maybe we are never alone. And more than this, maybe I can reach into heaven and I can take from heaven what I need today. Like one reaches into the fridge and pulls something out and drinks it in this world. Maybe this is what Peter meant when he said, we have a new and living hope 
through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, wait for it, and an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, nor fade, kept in heaven for you. Maybe he meant you don't need to go into heaven to get it any more than you crawl into the fridge to drink it. You reach into heaven and you pull into this world the resources that you need every day. And that's why, oh church, we get up in the morning before the world is awake and we find him there alone. He says things and he does things to our spirits when we are alone with him that quicken us back to life. And it is as if we just reached into heaven and pulled into this day today what I need for it. And the dead? Where are the dead? Well, the women ask themselves, wait a minute. This changes everything. Was he dying on Good Friday? Or was he coming alive? Did he go into that grave? Or did he go through it? Did he lose the world? Or does he see the world now like he's never seen it before? Did we bury his body? Or did we plant it? changes every funeral for us. Are you with me? Part of me believes this because I need to. I confess. The other part of me says this explanation of things is just as plausible as Rome's. So when I encounter people today that believe in the narrative of Rome, Jesus is not alive because dead people cannot come back to life. I see people who want to believe the women, but they can't. They have been groomed and discipled by the forces in this world to believe that that is the only plausible explanation for things. Now, for the first time, another narrative is possible. And you have to ask yourself, who do you believe? You believe Rome? Or do you believe the women? I'm not asking you who you want to believe. 
Because I know you want to believe them. I'm asking you who you actually believe. I said to my wife last year, I no longer believe in Easter. I know it. I know it. I've seen it. It's happened. He's alive. Because I talked to him. He was in the room. I could hear his voice. Every week. The story changes people. Not when the stone was moved. But when the women met him. On their way out, they met him. And that's when they know.